Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming and joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church this morning. And uh, as we have been able to celebrate uh, the Lord's goodness to us and His mercy to us, we've been able to sing about that, been able to hear about His love for us this morning. And now as we gather around His Word together, and then ultimately as we gather around the Lord's table together, we want to continue to celebrate that as a church family this morning. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, as we continue our study through this book. We want to continue that today, and, and we are going to see the Lord's sovereignty on display this morning and in some important details, in the details of His preparation and also in the partaking of this final meal that He shares with His disciples before He was crucified. If you've been with us, in our study of Mark's gospel thus far, and if you were with us last week particularly, you know that I told you that when we, when we hit chapter 14, we sort of hit the home stretch of, of what Mark has been writing about and getting us the, the, the culmination, really, of where he's been taking us on this journey. And over the next couple of chapters, what we're going to read about is the, the betrayal of Jesus, his arrest, uh, ultimately his trial, um, the abandonment that he suffers at, it, at the hands of his own disciples, and then ultimately his, his death. And when we read about these passages, it, it occurs to me that some may read about it and, and see what happens and, and, and get the impression that Jesus was somehow crushed under the wheels of the circumstances that he faced. Um, as we read last week, Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples, made the choice, made the decision to, to betray Jesus by going to the chief priests and the scribes and offering him up at a convenient time. And that's an important, it's an important point to note because the chief priests and scribes, the Sanhedrin as a whole, had been attempting to try to trap Jesus. And we've seen that multiple times in our study. But thus far, none of that had transpired. They had been unable to actually to trap Jesus in his words. And so when, when Judas comes to them, he is like the answer that they've been hoping for. And, and you also realize that, that the city of Jerusalem is just packed with people from all over Palestine who've come to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so the, the people were very in tune with Jesus, and, and even outwardly so, as much as, as anything, they, they had an attraction to him. They loved him. And so the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and scribes, had to be very careful about any attempt to try to arrest Jesus in a public setting because they were concerned about a riot occurring. So Judas coming to them and saying, look, I'm willing to betray him to you was an answer to their biggest question that they had. And he'd do it at a time when the crowd would be unaware of what was going on. So when we understand that and we see what begins to happen with Jesus, we may begin to think, well, wow, what a pity. What a pity that that Jesus has become the victim of his circumstances. Now he's going to be betrayed and he's going to be killed against his will. And when we, when we think about these chapters, we might jump to the conclusion and think, what a shame it is that all of this happened to Jesus. But I would beg you to consider this, that what happened to Jesus is not something to be pitied. It's actually something to be celebrated. We don't celebrate because some innocent man suffered and died. We celebrate 
Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Son of Man died in our place so that we might have life. That's why we celebrate. As we're going to read this morning, rather than Jesus' death being the result of, of some cunning or devious plot hatched by the, the chief priests and the scribes and aided by Judas Iscariot, rather than it being viewed as a victory by Satan who wanted to destroy Jesus, our Lord's death should be seen for what it truly is. And that is God's foreordained plan to provide the only means of salvation for sinners who stand condemned to die because of their sin. In fact, our text is going to reveal to us that Jesus, rather than being wedged into the cogs of, 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 of history, rather was actually fully in command of the events that would ultimately lead to his death and to the eternal salvation for lost people just like you and just like me. So with that as an understanding, let's go to our text this morning. Let's begin reading there in verse 12. Hear what the Word of God says to us. Now on the first day of unleavened bread when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city, found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening, he came with the twelve, and now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, One by one, is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the vine, of the fruit of the vine, until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we do thank you for being so good to us, loving us so, so deeply. Thank you for pursuing us for drawing us to yourself, for loving us as you have. Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice that you paid for us on the cross. Giving of yourself, your physical body, your, your blood. As we're going to look at this morning. Thank you for dying in my place so that I might have life. And I thank you, O Holy Spirit, for opening the word to us, for, for authoring it, and then for giving it to us so that we might be able to understand it and for working with us to help us understand. 
So we pray that you would be honored today, dear God. We pray that our lives would honor you and everything that we do would bring glory to you. In Christ's name, amen. Now, as I mentioned to you in our text, when we pick up with verse 12, and we, we see Jesus focusing on preparing and, and, and eating the Passover meal with his disciples, we may get the impression that he's oblivious to what happened back in verses 10 and 11. Because it is in verses 10 and 11 that we learn that Judas planned to betray Jesus and that he was going to work in concert with the, the, the chief priests and the scribes for this, this, this whole time of, of, of conspiracy against Christ. And so when we see what Jesus is planning to do, our, our mind may think, well, he doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes. But our text is going to reveal to us, provides us some clues that lets us know that he does indeed know what is going on. In fact, notice the first point on your outline this morning. I want you to see that our text reveals to us, and that is it's that the Lord is sovereign over his circumstances. The first thing that we read about this text is we recognize that the Lord is sovereign over his circumstances. Notice that in verse 12, Jesus' disciples ask him where he wants them to celebrate the Passover meal together at? What's the location? And then in verse 13, rather than giving them a specific answer, Jesus gives them somewhat of a cryptic and, and a curious reply. Um, he sends two of his disciples. Luke tells us that it's, it's Peter and John. He sends two of his disciples into the city to get everything ready for the rest to follow so that they could eat the Passover meal together. And in doing so, this is what he tells them. He says, I want you to look for a man who will meet you carrying a pitcher of water and then follow him. And Jesus goes on to tell them that once they follow that man, they follow him to whatever house he goes into, then they speak to the owner of that house and the owner of that house will show them the room that has been prepared for them in order for them to eat the Passover meal together. Now, rather than this just being unimportant, little tidbit of information, I would consider this to be a very important piece of information for at least a couple of reasons. First of all, we've already mentioned that this city was, was crowded with people from all over Palestine, people who had come to celebrate the Passover. And during the day, the streets would have just been densely populated with folks going here and going there. And so for these two disciples to go into this city of Jerusalem and identify a man that they did not know in order for them to find the place that Jesus had prearranged for them to eat the Passover meal together, well, then there would have had to have been some sort of distinguishing characteristic that would have allowed those two disciples to pick that man out of a crowd. And a man carrying a big old jar of water on his shoulder would have been just the thing. You see, this would not have been like a little mason jar of water. This would have been a very large pot that would have sat up on his shoulders, that he would have taken and walked through the streets with. And as many Jewish historians and scholars point out, this would have been a strange sight to see because women generally did that, not men. Men typically carried water in, in, in some sort of skins that were used to make a bag. It was typically the women that would have carried the water pot on their shoulders. And so to have found a man who was doing that would have been something that would have been out of the ordinary and that would have alerted both Peter and John that this was the man that they should follow. And then they would follow him into that house, talk to the owner of the house, 
and that's where the Passover meal would be. Now, the significance of them connecting up with the right person at the right time in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem is important enough, but it gives way to an even greater reason that this information, I believe, is included here in Mark's gospel. You see, commentators as far back as the 4th century have suggested that Jesus remained cryptic as to the location of where he planned to eat with his disciples in order to keep Judas from knowing where that exact location was in advance. Remember, Judas has already agreed to betray Jesus. And he's going to do it at a convenient time, at a time when the crowds aren't around. And so for Judas to have known in advance where Jesus was going to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus says no. The betrayal will happen, but it will happen in my time. You see, Jesus has already said, when I go to Jerusalem three different times in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, when I get to Jerusalem, I will be betrayed into the hands of the Gentiles and they will, they will kill me. It wasn't as if Jesus was preventing the betrayal from taking place. He was simply controlling the timing of the betrayal. And so Judas is kept in the dark as to where the Passover meal will take place until the time that Jesus has accomplished everything that he wants to accomplish. Jesus, the Lord, is sovereign over his circumstances. Now, I don't know about you, but such divine sovereignty gives me hope. And here's why. Kent Hughes has written it this way. He says, a God who is in control when the foundations of his own earthly existence are crumbling is a God who can be trusted to sustain us when it appears our life is tumbling in. Brothers and sisters, never a truer word has been spoken. Because the Lord is sovereign over his own circumstances, you and I can rest confidently that he is sovereign over our circumstances as well. Our Lord's sovereignty is made clear by what we read in verse 16. You see, Jesus had said, this is what you're going to have happen. This is what you're going to see. This is what you must do. Verse 16 tells us, so his disciples went out and came into the city and listen, found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. So that's the first thing that we learn from this passage. And that is that the Lord is sovereign over his circumstances. And that brings me to the next point that I think we need to know. The second point that I want you to know on your outline this morning is this. The Lord is sovereign over his supper. He's sovereign over his supper. Mark immediately fast forwards there in, in verse 17 to the events later on that evening. When they were, all his disciples were gathered around the table to observe the, the meal together. And notice that Jesus starts the festivities by just sort of dropping this bomb right in the middle of, of what would have probably been a, 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 a joyous scene. Jesus tells them in verse 18, one of you who eats with me will betray me. Now I imagine that you could have heard a pin drop in that room when Jesus uttered those words. That was, that was patently not what they would have been expecting to hear. Verse 19 Mark tells us that each of the disciples, one by one, looked at Jesus and said, Is it I? Is it I? In fact, the whole room echoed that same question over and over again. Is it, is it I? In the Greek, the construction of that question actually is more like this. Jesus, it's not me, is it? Now, the interesting side of that to me, first of all, is that based upon the way that Mark writes this, even Judas looked at Jesus and asked that question. 
Is it I? Now Judas knew what he had already planned to do in his heart. He knew he had already gone to the chief priests and scribes. He knew that he had already negotiated to be paid for his betrayal of Jesus. He knew exactly what he was going to do. But in his hubris, in his failure to recognize that Jesus was truly God in the flesh and knew exactly what was going on, he went to Jesus and even, is it, it's not me, is it? See, what Judas failed to understand is that the Lord sees into the deepest recesses of every person. There is not one thing that remains hidden from him. You and I should consider that just as Jesus knew everything that was going on with Judas, brothers and sisters, he knows everything going on with each and every one of us too. There's not one thing that we can hide from the penetrating gaze of an almighty sovereign God. But there's still more here. Because you see, though we know that Judas was the betrayer of Christ, don't miss the fact that it, the other disciples were also asking, is it I? I find it interesting that the other 11 didn't just immediately go, well, I know it can't be me, so it's got to be Judas, and they all start pointing to him. You don't see that happen. In fact, what you see is that each one of them began to look in their own hearts and go, well, is it me? Each of them soberly, looked within themselves and asked, Lord, is it I? What jumps out at me is that in his sovereignty over his supper, Jesus made a statement that caused everybody in the room to stop and think about their own lives and to consider their own attitudes and their own actions and their own affections. And brothers and sisters, you and I should also reflect on the same thing. In fact, whenever we come to the table of the Lord, as we will this morning, introspection is necessary. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 and following, that each person should examine himself or herself before he or she partakes of the Lord's Supper. Paul warns that if we do not do this, we eat and drink judgment unto ourselves, by which he means discipline. That can include physical illness and even death. And what that means is that you and I must engage in an evaluation of ourselves. We must allow the Holy Spirit to do his work of convicting us of sin and of selfishness and the hardness of our hearts. Now, as I said, we know that it was Judas who betrayed Jesus. And it was Judas that he was referring to. But what the Gospels go on to reveal to us, as we will come to in our study, is that in only a few short hours, in their confusion and in their fear, the rest of his disciples would abandon Jesus as well. And what that tells us is that none of us are immune from betraying the Lord. None of us. You see, like those disciples, we too are prone to selfishness. We, are, we too are, are prone to, to sinful behavior. We too are, are prone to allow our hearts to become hardened and, and calcified against the work of the Holy Spirit that He chooses to do. So, so just as those disciples did, so must we, before we come to the table of the Lord, we must examine ourselves to determine if our hearts are in the right place before God. And the reason that is the case is because the Lord is sovereign over His supper. 
You know, theologians have long argued and struggled, really, with the question of who should be allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper. And the Heidelberg Catechism attempts to answer that question. I'm going to read it to you, what, what it says. It says, the Lord's Supper is for those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their continuing weakness is covered by the suffering and the death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Then it says this, though, the unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Who should come to the table of the Lord? Well, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who has confessed their sins before him, recognizing they are a sinner, knowing that they continue to sin, but trusting and hoping and knowing that he has redeemed them and that they continue to strive to be more and more obedient to him. That, that is who comes to the table of the Lord. But notice, notice that the unrepentant eat and drink judgment to themselves. I think it's interesting that all these disciples ask Jesus, is it I, is it I? And then in verse 20, Jesus says, it's one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. Thank you very much, Jesus, for being so specific. But he adds this, it is one who dips with me in the dish. It is one who is eating with me. In that culture, to sit down to, or to recline at the table as, as they did there, to recline at the table... And to eat together was an expression of friendship. It was an expression of loyalty. It was an expression of relationship. So for Jesus to say, the one who is betraying me is one who is currently right now pretending to be my friend. Pretending to be somebody who loves me. Pretending to be someone who on the outside looks like they have a wonderful relationship with me, but on the inside, their heart is dark. Reminds me of what King David wrote about in Psalm 41, verse 9. He says, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. It is hard for me to imagine that Judas would follow Christ around Palestine for three and a half years and yet deliberately choose to betray him rather than believe in him. Yet that is exactly what he did. And in doing so, he condemned himself. In verse 21, Jesus uses a, he utters a really bitter warning to his betrayer. He says, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. So the Lord is sovereign over his circumstances. He is sovereign over his supper. The last thing I want us to note this morning is this, simply he is sovereign over our salvation. The Lord is sovereign over our salvation. Having identified the fact that there was a betrayer among them, Jesus continued on with the celebration of the Passover meal. And this was a meal that had been celebrated by the Jews for nearly 1,500 years. And it pointed back to the exodus of the Jews from Egyptian slavery. You'll recall that, that the exodus is the central event of the Old Testament. And you'll also recall that God sent many plagues upon Egypt in order to cause Pharaoh's tight, oppressive grip around the Israelites to turn loose and allow them to leave. But Pharaoh's heart remained hardened through all of those. But one night, 
One night, God sent a final plague, and in doing so, as Tim Keller has written, he unleashed, excuse me, he unsheathed the sword of divine justice. And it is important to note that when he unsheathed that sword, that justice was to fall on all who lived in Egypt, both, both the Egyptians and the Israelites as well. In every home in Egypt, the firstborn would die under the wrath of God's justice. And God's only appointed way of escape was by putting your faith in the sacrificial provision that he had provided, namely in the death of a lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorposts of your home as a sign of your faith in God. And as Keller goes on to write, when justice came down, either it fell on your family or you took shelter under the substitute under the blood of the lamb. Your salvation depended on your faith in the substitutionary sacrifice. You see, what that told those ancient Israelites and what it tells you and I as well is that the salvation that God provided was his salvation. In other words, it was his plan and it came according to his means. And the Passover meal was a way of celebrating that. It was a way of celebrating the fact that God says, I'm going to release you from bondage. I'm going to set you free from, from Egypt's power. I'm going to renew my relationship with you. And I'm going to redeem you by my divine hand. And that Passover meal celebrated that through the elements, the, the, the lamb and the, the bread and the herbs. All of those were symbolic reminders of the various aspects of Israel's, the Israelites' captivity and their de deliverance. And every Jew... Every year when they celebrated the Passover meal, they were steeped in the tradition of it. And they rehearsed it. As they observed it, they understood what all of those elements meant. So just imagine how astonished and how surprised the disciples were when during the middle of this Passover meal, Jesus departed from the script that he had been reenacting, that had been reenacted for generations, and instead he holds up the bread. And he says, this is my body. And he takes the cup. And after everybody had drunk from it, he says, this is the blood, my blood, of the new covenant, which is shed for many. What becomes evident is that at this Passover meal, things were going to be different from this point forward. Jesus had take the, taken the components of, of the Passover and he had redefined them into what now becomes the Lord's Supper. And he did by taking the, the, most, uh, the most known act and the central event of the Old Testament where, where God released his people from Egyptian slavery, really what that becomes is a precursor. It becomes a foretaste of the greatest releasal that would ever take place when Jesus Christ would die on the cross. And he would set prisoners like you and I free from the penalty of our sin and from death. And what it does is it redefines and, and, and takes the, the central history of, of the central event of all human history is now we understand the cross. Jesus said in the Lord's Supper, the bread represents his body, reminding us that the eternal Son of God took on a human body, lived a sinless life in that body, and that he bore our sins in that body when he died on the cross. And then he also says the cup is his blood, Meaning that, that just as the death angel passed over the houses on which the paschal lamb's blood had been sprinkled, so when the blood of the Lamb of God is applied to our guilty conscience, we are safe from God's wrath to come. 
The Lord's Supper is a remembrance of Christ and his one sacrifice that inaugurated the new covenant as the basis of our forgiveness and our relationship with God. That's verses 22 through 24. It speaks of his death. Verse 25 speaks of his resurrection. He says, I will no longer partake of the fruit of the vine until I come, until I return, and that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus said, yes, I'm going to die, but I will come again. And through my return, through, through partaking of that then, you can know that my death accomplished exactly what I designed for it to accomplish. Brothers and sisters, that's very important for you and I to get our minds around. Is that the sacrifice of Christ accomplished our salvation. It's not a theoretical accomplishment. When we by faith have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, in his shed blood, and in his resurrection from the dead, when our faith has been placed there, our salvation has been he says you can take confidence in that. So this morning my goal has been to show you from the text that rather than Jesus being some, some victim of, of a plot to snuff out his life, we've actually seen that the Lord is sovereign over his circumstances. He is he's sovereign over his supper. And he is sovereign over our salvation. He was not caught, wedged into the cogs of human history. Rather, he is the God who has come to save us from our sins. That leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. And it's this. The Lord's Supper then is a time of reflection that reminds us of his sovereignty over our circumstances the absolute necessity of his sacrifice and that his salvation is our only hope. So that's what leads us to the table this morning. It leads us here so that we can not just sing about it, though that is, that is good for us to do. It's here not just for us to read about it and to study it, though that is absolutely necessary that we do. But here, we come to this table together as brothers and sisters and we gather around it to hold the elements in our hands as we remember in a tangible way what Jesus has done for us. And so this morning, this is what I would invite you to do as in just a moment as our deacons will pass these elements out. As you hold that piece of bread and as you hold that cup in your hand and as you think about it, use this time as introspection, time of reflection on what God would have you to know, what the Holy Spirit might be bringing to your attention. Areas of your life that need to come before His penetrating stare. What would He have you to know? What repentance should you engage in? And then also reflect on the fact that Jesus Christ did this for you and accomplished your salvation. Our Lord, as we come before you this morning and as we partake of this food, I pray that it would be something that would not simply just be an event that we engage in every once in a while here at church. Rather, it would be something that you would drive the meaning very deeply within us. Help us to, help us to, to look into ourselves, but look to you, the only source of our hope. I pray this in Christ's name.
just a moment when you've got that cup in your hand and it's got the the red grape grape juice that'll be there. It's the color that reminds us of the blood, really. And and when you're reminded of the blood, you have to also be reminded of the fact that the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so as you're holding that and as you're reminded of the blood, you're reminded that Jesus Christ had to die. He had to shed his blood because of sins, and they weren't his sins, they were our sins. And so it's the reflection on that moment to realize that Jesus Christ gave everything, gave his life in exchange for yours. That is the central message of the gospel. And it is the good news to every man, woman, boy, and girl that even though you are a sinner, of which all of us know for our own fact that we are, Jesus Christ has given his blood that you might be saved. This is a proclamation of the gospel. And so, as you hold that in your hands, allow this moment to be a time of thanksgiving for the salvation that he has given to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for dying for us, and we thank you for your blood that you shed. Now allow us, Father, to be able to, to take this time in, in celebrating this supper, to be reminded of, of this love. And may it continue to impact us for the kingdom in Christ's name.
blood of Christ shed for the remission of sins. Take and drink. So the final verse of our text this morning said that after they had eaten, they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. We're not going out to the Mount of Olives this morning. We are going to sing. And we're going to sing about everything that we have discussed this morning, and that is the great mercy and the great grace of God extended to sinners just like you and just like me. And the fact that he has come to break the chains that bind us, just as he broke the grip that Pharaoh had on the Israelites. He has come through his death and through his resurrection to break the death grip that Satan and sin and hell has upon us. And so we can lift our voices and we can sing at the top of our lungs from the depths of our soul about how good and gracious he is. I'm going to invite you to do that this morning. I think that's an appropriate way for us to conclude this service together. It's also going to serve as an opportunity for you to be able to respond to that grace. Maybe you're here and you, you just know that there's some time you need to spend with the Lord in prayer this morning. This is going to be your opportunity to come and do that. Our altar's open. You're welcome to do that. Maybe you would like specific prayer about something that's going on in your life. I'll be up front. So will Pastor Ted. Pastor Dave will be glad to pray with you. Maybe you'd like to know more about Jesus and you would really like to talk to us further about him. We'd love to talk with you further about that, about our church. However the Spirit of God is moving, I invite you to come, but I encourage you to sing about the goodness and the grace of God. Let's stand on our feet as we sing.